sponsored by Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about the ongoing fight for Medicare for All. Also going to be talking about how the uh, housing and foreclosure issue is rippling through Detroit and the rest of the country. And it's Friday, which means we're having our weekly sports segment, the Red Spin Report. And as always at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell us what's on your mind. So now the Washington Post runs a big old story about Hunter Biden's shady deals, but it's not the one about Burisma in Ukraine. Nope. It's about his dealings with Chinese executives. And don't be fooled by this convenient display of alleged journalistic integrity, y'all. The Post went into detail about the dealings that Hunter Biden had with a Chinese company called CEFC China Energy. They report how Hunter Biden was paid $4.9 million to several businesses controlled by him and his uncle over 14 months by that company. There are documents that reflect a $1 million legal retainer, documentation of $3.8 million in consulting fees. Yes, with quotation marks around consulting fees. Federal prosecutors have allegedly had a hard time accounting for income from these deals, and they aren't sure if Hunter Biden has violated some tax laws. Oh, that's the concern? Tax laws? While the Post has now published this extensively detailed report of what the now verified to be real emails on the now verified to be real laptop hard drive say about Hunter Biden's deals with Chinese executives, they are still very light on what the same bunch of emails on the same laptop say about the Biden family's business deals regarding the Ukrainian energy firm Burisma. Because remember, when the Republicans first exposed this story back in 2019, Joe Biden and his aides and some former U.S. intelligence officials claimed that the laptop was meddled with by Russia to keep Joe Biden from being elected. Democrats dismissed reports about Hunter Biden's work in China and Ukraine as part of a Russian disinformation campaign. But now that the federal investigation into Hunter Biden's business dealings has not stopped and has, in fact, heated up since the evidence is on that laptop's hard drive has now been proven to be as real as it was back in 2019. Oh, now the corporate media outlets have egg on their faces for burying the story back then. But to save face, instead of focusing on anything that those 129,000 emails reveal about Hunter Biden's dealings in Ukraine, that I bet you any amount of money, well, not like millions, I, I don't have that much money, I bet you those emails expose a paper trail for that coup in 2014. Instead of focusing on that, they're focusing on his deals with China. Of course, this is to further the new Cold War against China. Democrats are cool with doing that. But imagine what would happen if those emails exposed what we've been saying all along on this show regarding Ukraine, that economically the coup 
put the U.S. and the EU in control of Ukrainian energy resources, and politically, it put Washington in control of Ukraine's military and used it as a proxy against Russia. Even the devil tells the truth sometimes, and as much as I hate to say it, the Republicans were right about this laptop and Hunter Biden's shady, opportunistic business deals that he was able to make because his daddy was vice president and was about to be president. If that is true for deals with China, why on earth would it not be equally as true for those deals with Ukraine? And speaking of Ukraine, on March 4th, Joe Biden asked Congress for $10 billion in new spending for alleged humanitarian assistance and military operations for Ukraine. Of that $10 billion, $4.8 billion would go to the Defense Department to support U.S. troop deployments to neighboring countries in support of NATO efforts and to provide more military equipment to Ukraine. Then on March 16th, Biden asked for an $800 million assistance package that includes a range of weapons and defensive gear for Ukraine. Biden said then that, quote, this new package on its own is going to provide unprecedented assistance to Ukraine. It includes 800 anti-aircraft systems to make sure the Ukrainian military can continue to stop the planes and helicopters that have been attacking their people and to defend their Ukrainian airspace. This was in lieu of a no-fly zone. In addition to the 800 Stinger anti-aircraft systems that Biden mentioned, the package also includes 2,000 Javelin and 1,000 light anti-armor weapons and 6,000 AT-4 anti-armor systems, hundreds of grenade launchers, shotguns, machine guns, thousands of rifles and pistols, more than 20 million rounds of ammunition, and tens of thousands of sets of body armor and helmets. And then just two days ago, Biden announced that Ukraine will receive an additional $500 million in aid, direct budgetary aid, Biden said, and promised that the administration will also offer more than $1 billion in additional funding toward humanitarian assistance and $11 billion over the next five years to address worldwide food security threats after the disruptions to the Russian and Ukrainian agricultural industries. The U.S. had provided more than $1.4 billion in assistance in Ukraine since 2021 before all of this additional funding. And there was not one hearing about it, but there was a hearing on Medicare for All this week on Capitol Hill with Representative Cori Bush co-chairing the House Oversight Committee that held the hearing. She said, quote, Americans deserve a health care system that guarantees health and medical services to all. Congress must implement a system that prioritizes people over profits, humanity over greed and compassion over exploitation. She also pointed out the racial disparities in healthcare, saying the systemic racism perpetuating health inequities cannot be overstated. Black women are three to four times more likely to die during childbirth, 
We are more likely to have rates of asthma and cancer from generations living next to pollution centers. We are more likely to have foregone routine screenings and medical appointments for a real fear of having our pain dismissed. We are dying in this country because we cannot afford health care. We are dying in this country because we cannot afford health insurance to access health care. We're dying in this country because of the racism among health care providers who dehumanize us when we encounter them in this health care system. We're dying for lack of health care. And we have to have a hearing to beg for money to stop that. But this administration didn't need any hearings to throw money at Ukraine, a crisis Joe Biden helped create when he was vice president under Barack Obama. Our health care money is being shipped to Ukraine to keep this U.S. government fueled proxy war against Russia going. And you ought to be very, very angry about that. Follow Luke Mon Nation on Patreon.com slash Luke Mon Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points. And you are listening to it by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us. By any means necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on as they say. We're now happy to be joined by Dr. Margaret Flowers, co-founder of Popular Resistance and director of the Help Over Profit for Everyone campaign. Dr. Flowers, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And uh, Dr. Flowers, uh, earlier this week, we saw some progressive lawmakers here in the U.S. uh, once again try to press the issue for a legislation around uh, Medicare for all. And specifically, this was around the uh, Medicare for All Act of uh, 2021, which was introduced last March by uh, Pramila Jayapal, the Congressional Progressive Caucus chair. And uh, Representative Corey Bush from Missouri, uh, who, of course, uh, cut her teeth as a Black Lives Matter organizer, said at the committee hearing, quote, Americans deserve a health care system that guarantees health and medical services to all. Congress must implement a system that prioritizes people over profits, humanity over greed and compassion over exploitation. And, you know, for me, Dr. Flowers, I mean, I'm glad that some of the progressive lawmakers are trying to bring this issue back to the table. But it's for me deeply confusing about why it was ever off the table. I mean, particularly during a pandemic where, you know, we're, we're staring down the barrel at uh, uh, a million deaths uh, uh, of the coronavirus pandemic. I mean, also, uh, when we look at, you know, the hundreds of billions of uh, dollars that the U.S. government wants to give to defense, I believe it's yeah, and $813 billion for defense that uh, Biden is, is, is asking for here. Matter of fact, I mean, 53% of the uh, discretionary funding for the budget that he wants for next year is pretty clearly going to both 
um, military and policing. And so I just feel like it's a sort of sad statement of affairs that in the wealthiest nation in the history of nations, there has to be this constant fight for something so um, fundamental, Dr. Flowers. But I mean, uh, I just think it sort of highlights, you know, the priorities of uh, this government. And it certainly isn't uh, the health and wellness of its uh, people. But, you know, clearly uh, they prefer for those resources to go towards war. Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, and it's it's not just this government, it's the whole system in which we live that basically values the profits for the wealthy and the corporations over literally the lives of human beings in our country and other countries as well. You know, no life is as worth as much to them as the, as the dollars that they can make in profits are. And it's so interesting to point out that, you know, you point out to the military spending, well, what kind of health care does our military get? They have a socialized system. They have a socialized health care system where they don't have to worry about uh, going into medical bankruptcy if, if they need health care. And actually, the VA system, despite all of the attacks on it and efforts to privatize, it still remains you know, one of our best and most efficient health care systems in the United States. So it, it's it's nice to see this gesture of having a hearing in Congress, uh, but it but it is just that, and that we still have a big fight ahead of us to basically achieve what every other wealthy nation has, which is a universal health care system that guarantees everyone can get the care they need when they need it. Yeah, and, you know, the fact that uh, it was raised in the hearing that, you know, around 30 million people in this country are uninsured, uh, and clearly that's uh, not even speaking to all of the, the hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who are denied care every year under insurance plans that they have. Um, I, I, I'm wondering if there has been any you know, legitimate and a substantive criticism of the Affordable Care Act, which was supposed to be like this, you know, improvement on the capitalist health care, health insurance system that we have. And the fact that even from the progressive camp, uh, any acknowledgement that the Affordable Care Act actually didn't move us any closer to an improvement in the uh, lack of access to health care that exists in this country, but has actually become an impediment to reaching that goal. Absolutely. And it's so interesting because, you know, this hearing wasn't specifically a hearing on Medicare for all. This was a hearing on how do we get to universal health care as if we're still trying to figure that out when we know, when we have plans, we have legislation, we know what the solution is. But the Democrats' line has been since the Affordable Care Act passed in 2010 is that, oh, you know, it's it's too much to go to a new system. We just need to work on, you know, we have this new thing, the ACA, we just need to work on improving it. But many of us have been critiquing it from the beginning and even before it passed and, and saying, you know, calling it out for what it was. The effort, the health reform effort in 2009 and 2010 was designed to bail out the private insurance industry, the pharmaceutical corporations, the hospital corporations that were struggling because almost 50 million people in the United States were uninsured and, and people with insurance were still not able to afford the care that they, uh, that they could get, you know, that they needed. And so this piece of legislation basically forced people in the United States to purchase a private product, private health insurance, knowing that private health insurance does not protect you 
when you need it that, you know, that so many people and a growing number of people are un- underinsured where they may be paying their premium every month, but because of the co-pays they have to shell out before they can get care, because of the deductibles they have to pay thousands of dollars before even that coverage they paid for will kick in and cover their care. Um, the restricted networks that you know the insurance companies tell you where you can go and they cut out the really important places where people need to go, like the major medical centers. <laughs> uh, plus, if you go, you know, if you get taken in the ambulance somewhere to a hospital and for some reason that emergency department is a private, which their most private entities contracted to the hospital is not in your network, then you're liable for all that. So the system is not working, but the ACA forced people to purchase these flawed products anyway. And we're continuing to see the same problems that we had prior to the ACA, but it has driven this huge profits for the private insurers and consolidation of our healthcare system in the hands of, uh, you know, fewer and fewer private corporations. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I'm curious from your perspective as a doctor, Dr. Flowers, how you sort of see this issue connected with the fact that um, the Biden administration uh, and really, you know, state and local governments around the country um, have begun seemingly relaxing uh, COVID restrictions more and more. And then with places ending mask mandates and all those sorts of things. And we've, you know, sort of witnessed, I mean, frankly, a kind of, uh, you know, shameful display from, you know, the CDC and institutions like this, uh, you know, just seeming like they're playing fast and loose with days that people should quarantine and all those sorts of things. I mean, it seems like the overall sort of mismanagement of the pandemic only uh, exacerbates the issue when we talk about uh, uh, health care for profit. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I think the, the pandemic has exposed so many of the flaws with our current health care system, which it's hard to even call it a system because it's, it's not a system. And so it was incapable of responding to the health care emergency of the pandemic because there was no coordination, because uh, there was no, you know, federal centralized response about how we can mobilize what we need in order to address the, the crisis. And so instead, it was just really sad to see hospitals and states fighting with each each other over getting the equipment that they needed, protective equipment for the healthcare workers, the uh, ventilators for the COVID-19 patients, and how the prices, you know, just went skyrocketing. And, and people were trying all kinds of back deals and sneaking supplies through to try to get what they needed. It was just really um, horrendous. And, and now, you know, I think the curtain has kind of opened up on Biden's whole, you know, when he became president saying that, oh, we're going to, you know, we're going to handle this problem with science. We're going to listen to the science. And that absolutely has not happened. And now all the supports that were actually under the Trump administration freezes on on uh, evictions and rents and, and student loans and providing uh, support payments and things like that. All of that now is is expiring at a time when we have a new variant of Omicron that has taken off in Europe and other countries and is starting to take off here in the United States. So it's just, I think it's, it's, it's just showing so much of the failures of not just our healthcare system, but the whole system that we have in this country. Yeah, that's definitely true. And something that was raised by Representative Cori Bush, which I'm glad she did raise it, was the the aspect of, uh, you know, racial discrimination in the healthcare system and how that exacerbates 
the lack of uh, quality health care that, I mean, is already so abysmally low in this country, but is made even worse uh, when people of color uh, experience uh, uh, the health care system. And this is, you know, an issue that's being addressed as a report just came out about how uh, apparently our suspicions were true, that when people found out that it was you know, people of color who were being impacted more uh, severely by COVID-19, then, you know, a lot of people were like, well, it's not so bad. We can open up. I mean, how do we address these persistent but persistently ignored issues of racial disparities in uh, health care and in uh, uh, the the system of uh, providing medical service to people in this country when we can't even have a conversation about the racial disparities themselves. Yeah, and that that racism and racial disparities in our healthcare system has existed from the very beginning of the United States, and it continues to persist. It was actually racism in the mid 20th century that kept us from getting the universal health care system that we wanted because the Dixie, you know, the Southern Dixie Democrats uh, did not want people to have equal access to care. And so they, you know, they, they defeated those efforts. There's been, you know, more than a hundred year effort in this country to try to get a universal health care system. Uh, but, but who's in charge? You know, the, the wealthy white elites are the ones making the decisions and they clearly don't feel vulnerable because they've, they, you know, I think the mindset that we're seeing from them is, oh, well, I'm okay. If I get COVID-19, I'll be okay. And that's all they really care about at the end of the day, that and, and continuing to, to make the money. And so, you know, not putting these protections in place for people, not providing basic things that people would need, you know, equipment, workplace protections, financial security, housing, food. All of those things have been a struggle, you know, during this pandemic. And so, you know, I think so many people are saying it and we have to realize it, that we can't address racism in this country if we don't address the economic and political system at the same time, because that's what our economic and political system is based on, you know, tragically. Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much, Dr. Flowers, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the housing crisis in Detroit and across the nation. And we're very happy to be joined for this conversation today by Abayomi Azikiwe editor of the Pan-African Newswire. Abayomi, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for the invitation. Absolutely. And Abayomi, in uh, Detroit, Michigan, a city with uh, an overwhelming uh, a majority of black population, um, has seen tens of thousands of people uh, threatened with foreclosures around issues of 
property tax. And uh, I, I tend to think that um, this is sort of uh, wrapped up with sort of deeper uh, uh, systemic issues, both inside Detroit. And I think that there are echoes of this uh, throughout the country. And I was hoping you could sort of break down uh, what is happening with these foreclosures and why does it have a particular impact on Detroit's uh, black community? Well, I believe that um, it has a lot to do with the historic racism. We look back at the uh, founding of the Federal Housing Administration in the 1930s. They deliberately uh, redirected uh, whites uh, to leave urban areas and uh, denied loans and other benefits to African-Americans. Also, in the 1950s, we had the passage of the uh, Federal Highway Act or the uh, Federal uh, Highway and Defense Act uh, that was passed under the Eisenhower administration in 1956, which facilitated uh, the building of expressways through black communities, not only in Detroit, but across the United States. I mean, this happened in Chicago. It happened uh, in St. Louis, uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, etc. And then, of course, uh, during the 1970s, uh, there was the problem with the housing and urban development, uh, where there was a huge scandal uh, that impacted Detroit and other cities uh, related to protecting the rights of uh, black homeowners. Then uh, in the 2000s, uh, you had predatory lending that targeted uh, black homeowners across the United States. Detroit, at one time, uh, believe it or not, had the highest home ownership rate of, among African-Americans in any other city in the United States. Uh, it was a working-class city, uh, but a lot of African-Americans owned their own homes. Of course, they were targeted uh, after 2000 uh, for first-time loans, for refinancing uh, programs that were predatory, that had adjustable rate mortgages, uh, which people could not pay, and uh, the banks knew they couldn't pay it. Yet these loans were insured uh, by large uh, insurance companies like AIG and others. And this, of course, brought about the so-called Great Recession of 2007, 2008, uh, where millions upon millions of people lost their homes. In Detroit, between uh, 2000 and 2010, approximately 240,000 people left the city. Uh, and they left uh, under duress uh, because of lack of jobs and the predatory uh, lending. And then, of course, this compounded the problem with overassessed property taxes uh, because the banks overinflated uh, the actual value of homes. And, of course, this ran up the uh, property taxes on the homes. So when the market collapsed after uh, 2008, where the homes were worth virtually nothing, uh, people were still stuck uh, with huge uh, property tax bills. So uh, between uh, 2005 and present, uh, there have been uh, tens of thousands of homes that have been put in foreclosure because of delinquent property taxes. So we've been fighting this uh, since uh, 2007, 2008, uh, through the uh, Moratorium Now Coalition, the Michigan Emergency Committee Against War and Injustice. And uh, in 2015, it came to a head. Uh, because uh, we were facing tens of thousands of property tax foreclosures. We launched a citywide campaign uh, where we were able to extend the deadlines 
we were able to, uh, 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 the county was forced to allow people to make arrangements uh, to pay back taxes through uh, payment programs. And uh, this has been going on since 2015-2016. Uh, there was even a lawsuit filed in uh, 2016 uh, by the Michigan ACLU, by the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, uh, around this issue, saying that people have been overassessed. Uh, in property taxes, and uh, these taxes should not have been imposed, and people should be paid damages, those who lost their homes. Uh, nonetheless, the outcome of that uh, lawsuit in 2018 did not provide any benefits to those people who had actually lost their homes, or it didn't, it didn't provide reimbursements for people who had been uh, overassessed. At least $600 million in overassessments uh, had been paid uh, in uh, the, to the Wayne County and the city of Detroit. Uh, so this struggle is ongoing. Uh, just recently, uh, two days ago, we were able to win another moratorium, another extension uh, for uh, uh, until 2023, uh, saying that they are not going to foreclose on homes uh, who owe back taxes from 2017 to 2019. So that pretty much sums up uh, what has been going on here. Uh, over the last uh, few years, and uh, I tried to give some historical information to point out that this is not a new problem, that black people in the United States have been facing a housing crisis for decades, and the U.S. government is at the source of the problem. The financial institutions are another major source of the problem, and also the insurance companies are another major source. And these people actually owe reparations to African-Americans and other oppressed groups uh, for the overassessment of uh, mortgages, overassessment of property tax values, and the foreclosure, seizure, and auctioning of their homes uh, in the city of Detroit and throughout the United States. For example, right outside of Washington, D.C., uh, in uh, Prince, Prince George's County, that was another area uh, where African-Americans had bought homes and they were deeply negatively impacted by uh, the mortgage crisis uh, in the 2000s. So this is a nationwide problem of displacement and of exploitation. Yeah, Abayomi, I really appreciate the historical context you provide because you mentioned the FHA and uh, the racist practices that the uh, organization that the FHA grew out of uh, uh, committed. But there's also an aspect of this that that comes out of the National Interstate and Defense Highway Act that I don't think people understand how that factors into why these kinds of situations exist in communities like uh, uh, like Wayne County in Detroit. And I'm wondering if you can give us a little bit of insight into that piece of legislation and what it did to create these kinds of conditions. It facilitated through federal funding uh, the building of highways and expressways uh, in major urban areas. And the fact that they had the word defense attached to it indicates clearly uh, that it had a military component uh, to the strategy. Remember, this was back during the days of the Soviet Union, uh, the um, early years of the People's Republic of China, and the U.S. Uh, was concerned about uh, military conflicts on an international level. Then, of course, in the 1960s, with the urban rebellions, 
this was also a factor uh, to take into consideration that they needed to move National Guards and federal troops and state police forces into areas to put down urban rebellions. We saw that in Detroit in 1967, uh, which was one of the largest urban rebellions in the history of the United States. And it happened in hundreds of cities across the United States. Uh, they destroyed black communities under the guise of blight removal. Uh, here in Detroit, uh, the area that was called uh, Black Bottom and Paradise Valley and later the Old West Side uh, and also John C. Lodge uh, Service Drive or Boulevard, it was John C. Lodge Boulevard, all these areas were destroyed uh, during uh, the 1950s and early 1960s. And this forced a lot of people to relocate uh, to the west side of the city. And, of course, in 1967, this all exploded uh, because of the overcrowding, uh, the police repression, and uh, the poverty and neglect uh, that people were subjected to. Even under a Democratic administration, uh, people like Lyndon Johnson, uh, people like Ramsey Clark, uh, who was uh, attorney general at that time, they were all involved uh, in this process of repression, even though uh, the Johnson administration signed the Civil Rights Act of 1964. They signed the Voting Rights Act of 1965. There was another Civil Rights Act of 1966 that was supposed to uh, provide fair housing. It failed largely because of the advent of black power and urban rebellions. It was passed uh, a couple of days after the assassination of Martin Luther King in April of 1968. But the Fair Housing Act, if you read it, Although it outlaws discrimination in housing, there's a second clause in it, uh, which is called what had been called in 1967, the year before, the H. Rock Brown Anti-Riot Act. It, it prohibits uh, anyone traveling across state lines to uh, foment uh, civil disorder or urban rebellion. So it was nullified from the beginning uh, because uh, the, the whole thrust and the whole spark uh, of the urban rebellions uh, had a lot to do with the housing crisis and uh, with uh, repression. And uh, so by saying that you have a right to fair housing, but at the same time saying uh, that we can uh, persecute you, prosecute you, and repress you, you know, if you foment the uh, urban rebellion, uh, nullifies the act in and of itself. And the Fair Housing Act has never honestly and gener generally been implemented in the United States. And that's why we have the crisis that we have now. So we're going to continue to fight this on a local level. And uh, there are other uh, anti-foreclosure and housing groups around the country. What has happened in Detroit is that at one point, uh, it was a majority homeowning city. As I mentioned earlier, even African-Americans, um, the majority of them that lived here own their own homes. Now it's the opposite. The majority of the people that live in the city of Detroit are renters. And the same interests, the same securitized trusts, the same uh, uh, banks and real estate firms that were involved in the mortgage crisis uh, a decade ago or a decade and a half ago now are involved in rental properties. The same securitized interests. So rents are going up and housing is becoming extremely scarce in cities like Detroit. People have to pay astronomical amounts of money to rent apartments and flats, uh, which are far smaller uh, than the homes that they owned uh, a generation or two generations ago. 
Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I feel like a lot of this um, Abayomi is sort of based around the fact that housing, like, you know, basically any other um, necessity of life is, you know, put to the interest of capital in this country. It, it It's it's a human right, but it's treated as yet another commodity to be bought and sold. And so, I mean, for me, it really feels like the capitalist system itself is at the root of what is driving uh, uh, the housing crisis here in the U.S., both today and historically. No doubt about it. Absolutely no doubt about it. Uh, look at cities like New York, for example, uh, where in boroughs like Manhattan and Brooklyn, uh, it's very difficult for working class people and oppressed people uh, to find housing because it's so expensive. Washington, D.C. is another example. When I used to visit Washington, D.C. Uh, as a young person back in the uh, 1980s, it was a totally different city uh, than what it is now. Uh, people have been driven out uh, because of the high price of housing. Uh, so these are the issues that uh, that need to be addressed on a national level. And uh, there's not going to be any real stability domestically until the housing crisis is settled. It's a, uh, it's, it's a disaster uh, happening right now, and uh, it's, it's a time bomb that eventually will explode once again, uh, as it did uh, in previous years, uh, such as uh, what happened in 2014, what happened in 2020, what happened during the 1960s and 1970s. It's going to come back again. And uh, it's going to be even more explosive because the conditions are becoming uh, more dire uh, every every single year. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Abayomi, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And it's Friday, which means it's time for another edition of our weekly segment, The Red Spin Report, where we discuss sports, politics, and struggle. Today, being joined by Miguel Garcia of the Anti-Conquista Collective and the host and creator of the Sports as a Weapon podcast. Miguel, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Sean and Jackie. Glad to be back. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, to start today, Miguel, I want to talk about this issue with the Washington football team, the uh, recently christened uh, Commanders, reportedly getting into some funny business as it pertains to their financial situation. I was hoping you could break down uh, uh, just what's happening here uh, inside the, the Washington team. So I believe it was yesterday or um, Wednesday where this report came out that the Washington Commanders, formerly the Washington football team, are being investigated by Congress and like a House committee or, uh, for potentially uh, allegedly using two different uh, pretty much accounting books, financials, uh, keeping track of the financials in two separate books, which is, I guess, illegal. <laughs> um, so this report came out. Um, and the, this is all coming from the Washington commanders already being investigated. 
by uh, Congress. They were they've been investigated because of their toxic uh, work culture um, since last summer. After they've been a uh, owner, Dan Snyder has been accused of uh, uh, sexual harassment and other things by former uh, employees, I believe, cheerleaders of the team and other female employees. So that's how this all investigated investigation had started. Um, and then in July, last July, Dan Snyder supposedly stepped down from the day-to-day operations of the commanders. And his wife, Tanya Snyder, is now running the team day-to-day, which I find kind of odd because that's his wife. But, so even if he's not there day-to-day, he probably knows what's going on. But supposedly he left the team to step down while this investigation was going on. And so he could focus on finding any stadium for the Washington Commanders. And then uh, people I've heard, I talked about this before, went on your show here. Uh, in October is when uh, the emails from former Las Vegas Raiders coach John Gruden came out because he was emailing the former GM of the Washington Commanders, Bruce Allen. So how, that's how all this has started, where they've been getting investigated. And now this report comes out that they're that they may be using a, um, two different books to keep track of their financials. And one of the, it's still very vague on a lot of the information because it just started. The Washington commanders already made a statement and denied it. But one of the information info that did come out in this report, even though there's not a lot still, is that they found information of the team uh, paying men more than women, which we already know that's a systematic issue throughout uh, the U.S. when it comes to the workplace and the uh, gender pay equality. But I thought that was also interesting that they found information and details that shows that they're paying uh, men way more than other women employees. So that's kind of what's happening right now with that, with the Washington football, uh, Washington commanders. You know, there will always be the Washington football team to me. And as a resident of Washington, D.C., and, you know, some had a little bit of fan of the team, not so much anymore because they are just not the Washington football team of old. I got to say, Miguel, I'm glad to see it because these rumors about the sexual harassment, the corruption, uh, just the absolute toxic culture uh, from the front office to the football field have been floating around about this team certainly since Dan Snyder has owned it but it's been it's been around for a little bit longer than that um, but I'm wondering how the now uh, uh, congressional investigation into this team is going to impact the bottom line Right. Because, of course, now the team is looking for a new home. It's looking for all kinds of tax breaks and whatnot for a new stadium. Uh, they're looking at Virginia. They're looking at Maryland. How, how could this investigation impact that search for a new stadium home, particularly since the team was fined $10 million in July in regard to some of these uh, issues that have already been uncovered. So if these, uh, if these allegations become true um, with the, them using two different books, if they're using two different books, I'm not an accountant, but that sounds like uh, 
they might not be in a great financial situation. And as you said, they got fined $10 million for this work, toxic work culture that they've been investigating. Um, and then I also read that in the summer when Dan Snyder stepped down from the day-to-day operations, the NFL like loaned him, I believe, is a billion dollars. It was a lot of money. Um, I don't know exact the exact number right now on top of my head, but they loaned him a lot of money to pay some of his debt from when he bought the team, which was, I believe, like in 1999 or 2000. It's been a while, over 20 years ago. So that was interesting. But yeah, as you said, I think if this this is true with these issues with their financials, this should this will probably have an impact on their football team when it comes to signing players and paying, uh, you know, getting good players on their teams. Historically, since Dan Snyder has owned the team, Washington has always been a big free agent uh, spender when it comes to players and free agency. Um, but if these if this these allegations of their financials are true, I think it will also impact their pursuit for a stadium because it's, and I ultimately believe it will also might lead to Dan Snyder finally having being forced to sell the team, which I'm surprised hasn't happened yet because the NFL, all the other billionaire owners, all the other NFL owners do not like when one of their owners, their teams makes, makes them all look bad especially when it comes to stuff like this, when it comes to money and Congress overseeing them and watching them now. Um, so I believe it will impact the team when it comes not only to signing free agent players, but also potentially getting stadium, a stadium stadium. Cause now maybe some of these legislators, these politicians won't, won't be as willing um, to fork, fork over uh, taxpayer money to build a new stadium as they usually do. They usually get money from the taxpayer money to build these stadiums. Essentially it's welfare money for them to build new stadiums. Um, but I, I, I think this will all impact them, especially where it might lead to Dan Snyder eventually finally having to be forced to sell the team. Yeah, definitely. And uh, switching gears a, a little bit, although uh, still staying on uh, the topic of the NFL, it's being reported that a New York state and local government will be contributing $850 million in tax dollars now, uh, basically to help the Buffalo Bills uh, construct a new stadium in western New York that is reportedly set to cost about $1.4 billion. And if this goes through, it would actually be uh, the biggest uh, contribution the government's made to a, a sports stadium with, I think, the, the current record being held by Las Vegas, which contri- which committed $750 million uh, for the Raiders. And uh, I was hoping you could tell us more about this, Miguel, and, you know, uh, whether or not this fits into sort of a broader pattern of, uh, you know, localities and states giving up this kind of money for stadiums. Yeah, so as you said, this has been a, a constant uh, pattern for decades when it comes not just to NFL owners, but all NBA, MLB, uh, professional sports owners here in North America and the United States. Um, as you said, Las Vegas was the previous uh, record holder for getting free $750 million from taxpayer money to build their stadium in Las Vegas. And now here comes um, the New York governor, uh, Vogel, giving uh, approving, as you said, uh, Sean, $750 million 
um, or $700 million from the state of New York taxpayer money, plus $250 million taxpayer money from Erie County, where Buffalo is at. That's the record, as you said, $850 million. And it continues the pattern of, of owners getting billions of dollars in taxpayer money to build these large, uh, expensive stadiums when they, most of them, all of them could afford to build these stadiums on their own and still be rich. The owners of the Buffalo Bills, um, Terry and Kelly Pegula, are worth $5.8 billion. They're in the top 10 of NFL billionaire owners and worth. They could easily afford this $1.4 billion stadium. But as all previous teams that always look for a new stadium and want free taxpayer money to fund their stadiums, they always threaten to move the team. And I believe in August, the Buffalo Bills owners kind of made a threat like that, saying that they might move it. They could eventually move the team to Texas. I don't know where, because there's already the Cowboys and the Houston Texans, Dallas Cowboys and Houston Texans. But that was a threat. But it, it continues the same pattern that other teams have done in the past. As you mentioned, the Las Vegas Raiders. I'm a fan of the Raiders. It's pretty upset when they moved from Oakland. But they did the same thing, made the threats of, you know, give us the money to build this stadium when we're moving. So this continues that pattern, which actually the last cup, I think the Los Angeles Rams stadium was the only stadium that was actually privately funded by the actual owner, Stan Kroenke. But everyone else has pretty much been getting money from taxpayer money. And as you said, this is the new record. And it just continues the, the pattern of this corruption from billionaire owners being able to swindle the people, the politicians and get politicians to fund, to give them all this money just to build stadiums. And they always talk about it will lead to, you know, uh, jobs and improve the economy and the local economy, but it usually does not. Like I used to work at a sports arena um, where I'm from in Southern California and they said, oh, it'll create all these jobs. And it did. But usually it's just part-time jobs, you know, temporary jobs. Well, most of the full-time positions, there's not as many. Usually a lot of the workers are uh, stadium workers. That's their part-time jobs, not a full-time job. So even that, those uh, points of emphasis that they make that is a positive of building these stadiums is really a lie as well. Because they don't, they don't really create full-time jobs. They create part-time jobs when they build these stadiums too. So there's just another example of sports teams uh, swindling us for our taxpayer money to build their uh, palaces. Yeah. I mean, and, and it it's, you know, you look at these football teams, Miguel, and you look at their demands from municipalities to literally give them money to build their teams. And in the end, as much as people might be fans of the team, the people whose communities are uh, displaced and disrupted uh, when these stadiums are built, what do they ultimately get from these, uh, you know, taxpayer incentivized uh, sports complexes when they're finally erected? So I'm glad you brought that up, Jackie, because as the governor of New York announced that they're going to give this money to the Bills to build their new stadium, I think last week, the governor of New York, New York proposed that she would uh, slash $800 million, I believe, from child services, from the New York Child Services. So it looks like they're literally 
taking this 800 million that will help people, that will help children, that will help the working class, taking that money, slashing that money, and giving it to these billionaires to build their stadiums. So that that's one example right there how it impacts the, you know, the working class, the poor, just the regular working class person that's just struggling, you know, living paycheck to paycheck, trying to live in this hyper capitalist society here in the United States. And here comes these billionaires using, and these their politicians that are in their pockets, using these austerity measures to cut funding that we that people need, and using that money and pretty much giving it to these already rich billionaires to build their stadiums. Um, and then, as you said, it could also displace people. So I don't know when this stadium gets built. Supposedly, they want it built by 2026, as we've seen with other stadiums like the SoFi Stadium in Los Angeles that the Rams and Chargers uh, recently built in Inglewood. It displaced a lot of people there in Inglewood to build the stadium. Um, a lot of the residents are black and brown people, and so they got displaced. And that's, that just added also to the to more uh, to people becoming houseless as well. So this is also just a ripple effect. When the stadium gets built in Buffalo, the same thing will happen. Unfortunately, there's, there's going to be people that will be displaced when they want to build their stadium. Um, so I think that's also that's a very important thing to point out when it comes to these uh, new stadiums. Because, yeah, it might be a fan. It'd be nice to go to this new stadium. But the other problem with these new stadiums as well is they, once they build a new stadium, the ticket prices go up. And so it makes it more expensive to the working class sporting fan, sportsman to even able to go to these games in person because they, they all these new stadiums have suites and uh, PSLs, uh, private seat licenses that cost a lot of money. And pretty much, so pretty much only people with a lot of money could afford to go to these games. So there's a lot of issues that come out about from building a new stadium. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, the last thing I wanted to touch on here, um, Miguel, is how uh, Bruce Arians is stepping down as head coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Um, and it looks like Todd Bowles, uh, his uh, defensive coordinator, will be stepping into that spot. And so I'm just sort of wondering well, what you make of that and uh, what do you think the ripple effects may be on uh, Tampa? So I have... Uh, I, I see it as mostly a positive because it's elevating a black coach to the head coach position. And he's Todd Bowles previously was the head coach of the New York Jets a couple years ago. And if you're a football fan, you know, or a Jets fan, maybe, you know how that bad's been with being a Jets fan and how bad their teams have been. So when Todd Bowles was hired as the Jets head coach a couple years ago, he was pretty much set up to fail because his team wasn't very good. And that happens a lot when it comes to uh, black and uh, non-white coaches when they get hired as head coaches. They tend to take over a very bad team. The team doesn't improve, and then they get blamed and they get fired. So they never get a really good team, a good chance to show how good they are um, as coaches. So that apparently that was the reason why, one of the reasons why Bruce Arians decided to step down this season instead of because he said he would pretty much he would have retired after this season anyway. So he'd rather do it now with Tom Brady unretiring and coming back and giving the team to his defensive coordinator, Todd Bulls, so he could have a really good team to kind of show he's a good coach. So I thought that was really cool. 
but it's also kind of weird to me in a way too, because it's kind of like, oh, here those white savior Bruce Arians giving his team to his black assistant coach. So there's different ways to look at it, but I see it as a positive. Um, I think Todd Bowles is a really good defensive coordinator, defensive coach. So I'm hope, even though I'm not a fan of Tampa Bay. I hope he does well and and is successful because we need more black coaches. There's now with Todd Bowles uh, becoming the head coach, that he's only the fourth black head coach in the NFL currently, and I think the sixth non-white coach with the Jets' current coach uh, Salah Salah and uh, Ron Rivera, the coach of Washington Commanders, being Latino. So there's only six non-white coaches for black coaches in the NFL, and this is all coming after the lawsuit of Brian Flores, uh, you know, suing the NFL for discrimination, hiring practices. Um, So overall, I think it's pretty cool that Todd Bowles will have a chance to coach a good team, but I also thought it was a little weird because Bruce Arians is kind of like, oh, I'm being a white savior here. Um, So that's kind of my thoughts on it. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Miguel, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. Simply stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. By any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Friday, April 1st, 2022. That's right. Wake up, wake up. It's the first of the month. And At 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we will be taking your calls at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Our operators are standing by. You can also check us out streaming live, as always, at rumble.com slash C, as in cat, slash B-A-M. Necessary can also download our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio underscore by underscore any underscore means. And in the D.C. area, you can hear us on 105.5 FM and 1390 AM on your dial. But wherever you are in this world, we most certainly want to hear from you. And uh, at the top of the hour today, some really good news because workers at an Amazon.com facility in New York have voted to establish the first union in the U.S. for Amazon. This is a major victory for a labor activists who have been fighting for uh, a better conditions for uh, quite a while. And we've been tracking that struggle and speaking to some of the leadership of that struggle here on By Any Means Necessary. And this was at the JFK 8 facility, uh, which is Amazon's largest facility in Staten Island. And they voted uh, 2,654 to 2,131 in favor of organizing according to the National Labor Relations 
board. So I just want to begin by saying congratulations to all of those workers. Very important thing to do, particularly at a massive corporation like Amazon, which is headed up by one of the wealthiest people on earth, uh, Jeff Bezos. But be that as it may, we're happy to be joined for the hour today by Maurice Cook, a founder of Serve Your City. Maurice, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. I love our Fridays together. It's been a while. God bless both of you, and and uh, I hope you, you and your families are doing well. Well, we appreciate that, Maurice, and uh, want to send those blessings right back to you. And uh, I wanted to start today by talking about the issues in D.C. with crime and things like this, because like so many other things, I feel like a lot of trends that we see in D.C. Uh, uh, are kind of part and parcel of broader trends we see across the country. And I mean, there have been um, reports of uh, an uptick in carjackings and, and other sort of uh, violent crimes here in the district. And this comes at a time where, you know, uh, the city administration, the city government, particularly the mayor and the chief of police, um, uh, uh, seemingly have a kind of uh, a tough on crime kind of stance, a law and order kind of stance, despite D.C. having this image of being, you know, a quote unquote progressive city. And I mean, honestly, Muriel Bowser, for the entirety of her time as mayor of D.C., she has been very pro-police, always defends the cops whenever they kill or brutalize someone uh, without fail. And so she is always, always down for giving the cops more money and more power and all those sorts of things. And of course, generally speaking, whoever the chief is at the time is uh, usually more than happy to accept that support. And, you know, I'm just wondering what you think uh, these sorts of things sort of really mean or what they or like the implications that they have for kind of the social situation in the city, if you will, Maurice, because I mean, for me, when we talk about crime, uh, there's almost always sort of a social base to it or economic base in terms of uh, why a lot of these things take place. And I think points to the depth of poverty and underdevelopment that uh, has taken root uh, in this city over some time. But, you know, as someone who is from here and who does a lot of work with some of the most uh, vulnerable elements, the local population, now I'm wondering how you're seeing this issue. Well, um, it's tough because we have to we have to keep in our prayers the people who are hurt and victimized the most in in this city. Um, that is um, black people who are stuck um, with resources that have been historically generationally inadequate and left to spend really for themselves exacerbated in recent time by our economic or global economic challenges uh, from COVID and, and just a, a degenerate capitalism, right? So we have to really support and pray and pray with our feet and service um, for those people who have very little uh, hope for 
in their day-to-day lives, uh, given that there is a scarcity of resources that they have to normalize, and then they are um, targeted as the blame for their own condition when we know these are designed structural inequalities. And so well, we have to keep our focus there, but when it comes to the mayor and let's call it the bourgeois middle-class um, constituency base that she is beholden to, um, the police, that is their only um, mitigation tactic. And the only mitigation that they care about is to remove it from their face and to cage it or kill it. Um, They will never acknowledge uh, the true nature um, of deprivation that people feel on a day-to-day basis, and they certainly will never sacrifice any um, resources that they could acquire and hoard for themselves to address it on a structural level. You know, Maurice, you know, we live in a city in which the city council overturned the democratically conducted vote to raise the tipped worker minimum wage, um, has overturned other democratically um, uh, uh, implemented votes to provide, you know, services for uh, you know, marginalized people in the city. How in the world do the people who most need this government in this city, we're not even talking about the federal government, we're talking about the government on a local level, to do anything for them when that very same government, at any time they feel like it, will overturn what people vote for that will actually put more money in people's pockets, put more food on the table for people, and help keep people from reaching the levels of desperation that we know contribute to the kind of crime that we see? You know, that's a great question, Jackie. It's, you know, and it's, it, it's happened here in D.C., and I think that's a, it's definitely a national issue, too. It's like, it's like being being enslaved on a plantation and asking master how to escape, and then the the, the advice and guidance that master provides is, is is your means of trying to be liberated. But of course, we know master would never create anything or provide any support in you know extorting the resources of human bodies when when master is benefited from the, the status quo. Master is benefited from the status quo. And that's what I, how I would kind of characterize our local electoral system here in, in Washington, D.C. We have, you know, Democrats. <laughs> we have Democrats um, who really have uh, a KKK mask on because they are hiding their their true nature. And while they get to you know, you see the cachet of being progressive, they can enact um, the most, you know, what is termed or what is at least perceived as very conservative, Republican-like um, policies. 
Um, that initiative that you're talking about when it came to, to tip wages, um, that was thrown out uh, by utilizing the courts after the chair basically, you know, um, did not authorize the, the, the referendum of the initiative. And that was absolutely undemocratic. So even, even the rules that were so hard fought for that to be able to petition and, and, and directly have democracy by referendum, they skirt the rules to create an incentive rules. What does that sound like um, on a national level? So it's tough. I mean, there is a, an absolute um, okey-doke going on here where we have a group of elected officials who get to, you know, throw up their arm and say Black Lives Matter, but incarcerate more Black people per capita than any other place. Yeah, you know, and that whole issue with the tip wage memorandum was just, that was just so ridiculous. And it's always so frustrating to think about it because, I mean, it, 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 at least in my, uh, uh, I suppose, relatively uh, short time here in uh, D.C., it, it, I just have never seen such a, a bare naked rejection of, you know, a, a, a democratic process in that way. The thing that they tell us to put, you know, all of our faith in and all that sorts of things and how that's, you know, the best way to meet out these sorts of issues. I mean, people did that. They signed up. I signed it. Lots of people signed it. I mean, you know, there were people posted up outside of grocery stores and all kinds of different places around the city to get um, uh, uh, support for this. And then it was just sort of brushed off. And I think it, you know, says a lot about, you know, where uh, uh, power really resides in that way. And, you know, speaking of like crime and violence, Maurice, I was thinking about how the state as an apparatus, with all of its representatives and denizens at the state, local, and, and federal level, about how really they get to decide as members of the ruling class, you know, what is crime and what is violence. Because, I mean, there's also been in D.C. Um, some recent murders of homeless people that's gotten a, a little bit of coverage here. And to me, that's directly tied to the violence of, frankly, a manufactured homeless crisis. And I say as manufactured because, as we point out often on the show, not only is there enough housing in D.C. to house all of the homeless people in this city, there's enough housing in this country to house uh, uh, the homeless population. It's more, uh, there's more uh, housing, there's more empty housing than there are even homeless individuals. Not to mention the fact, and I'm sure you saw this, Maurice, about how the local government, the National Park Service, is saying that it's planning to close two homeless encampments uh, in May. One of them, uh, at the intersection of New York Avenue and I Street Northwest, which is, is is not terribly far from where we are at Sputnik. And the other one, um, the encampment outside of Union Station. And see, you know, these to me both kind of feel like uh, 
uh, I don't know if I want to say uh, popular, certainly, uh, you know, like Union Station is, but, you know, for a city government, particularly for a rapidly gentrifying city that wants to attract more money and people with money and things like that, you know, a homeless people become sort of a, 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 a nuisance because they disrupt, you know, the landscape that uh, the capitalists want to really uh, uh, cultivate here. And as we've noted, since the beginning of the pandemic, certainly homelessness was an issue in this town before the pandemic. But we've seen not only a growth in the existing encampments, but new encampments popping up as well, which would imply that the already very serious homelessness crisis in D.C. has only gotten worse. And so, you know, you know, from your perspective, Maurice, I mean, what do you make? I mean, not only of the ongoing violence uh, uh, against the homeless on an interpersonal level, but also this um, systemic violence that is constantly, you know, displacing and, and harassing this element of the population. It was very painful to see uh, Mayor Muriel Bowser of Washington, D.C., and Mayor, what is it, Eric Adams of New York City, come together on on this like uh, interstate crime initiative to um, uncover uh, the perpetrator of of murder murdering um, innocent um, human beings who happen to live outside on the street um, and I, I can't speak on New York because I'm not on the street you know I, I don't necessarily understand all of that the dynamics, but I can speak of Washington D.C. Uh, because I am a part of an organization um, that has provided the majority of the tents that Washingtonians see. The majority of inadequate temporary housing, the only resource being tents that we can and have the capacity to provide to protect human beings that live on the street as best as we can. It, it, it's very hurtful to, to have watched them being lauded for this, this, this interstate um, effort, understanding that structurally, systemically, their inaction in prioritizing the value of human beings by making sure that they see the moral right that all humans deserve a right to have adequate housing, which is a structural death, a slow death by not prioritizing this and then being celebrated for, for you know, um, allegedly capturing the, the, the perpetrator who has been charged with committing these crimes. It, it, it's, there's, you know, there's, there's sad irony in all of this. It's, you know, what would you rather die from? Um, you know, the firing squad or or the death of a thousand meter points, right? And this is perpetrated on our unhoused um, brothers and sisters and siblings every single day. I I, I would assume both in D.C. and in and definitely definitely in D.C. but also in New York, and they will unfortunately will never create um, or take advantage of, as you mentioned, 
the the great supply, abundant supply of housing that is available for human beings who need um, and deserve housing, because it is not just and and it is getting worse based on you know so many things, um, but mostly our political establishments being the the mid managers for um, the developer industry, the development industry. And I know that this is happening nationally. And we we are very challenged. And and I know what will happen in Washington, D.C. is that we will shift to wherever our people will be moved by the state. And these are these are panaceas and band-aids when they do these clearings. They just want the tents out of sight and the humans out of sight. And so if disappearing humans who live on the street is the policy, it, 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 it would be more, more genuine. It would be more respectful to just say what the truth is instead of pretending as if they are providing the necessary holistic supports and services um, that that these citizens, that these human beings, um, that these, you know, brothers, sisters, and siblings absolutely deserve. We will follow them, Service City, Ward 6 Mutual Aid, and we will provide the best support that we can provide given our, our limited resources, no matter where they go. Well, that was powerful when you said that their policy is to disappear the people. Because as dark and as soulless as that sounds, it's absolutely true. And, you know, uh, this, this local leadership, which is totally and completely in cahoots with developers and these other uh, wealthy corporate interests, um, this is uh, something that can, can, can throw off the money flow. They're not uh, productive. These human beings are not considered uh, uh, productive or relevant or helping in this uh, process of trying to maximize profit in this town. Therefore, they have to be removed out of sight, out of mind. And what actually happens to these flesh and blood people is uh, really not seen as that much of a concern. It's uh, absolutely a dollar bill over human life, a really sort of heinous way of considering other people. But this is what happens. This is the kind of posture that these elements take under a capitalist system. But we're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman continue to be joined by Maurice Cook. And uh, shout out to the by any means necessary chat. Uh, Emma 
uh, has written in the chat, quote, people need political power. Representative democracy, even at the local level, only may work if people have bargaining power. And it's an interesting point, uh, Maurice. And I don't think it's a coincidence that, you know, when we discuss really any of these issues, be it housing, policing, uh, uh, fair wages, workers rights or whatever and what have you, it seems to always, always, always be a, a question of power. And I know that in D.C., any any concession, any uh, movement forward, any sort of real uh, gain or benefit that has been made, it hasn't happened, you know, because of the uh, beneficence or of the, you know, uh, moral fiber of the local government. But uh, instead, it's a result, a direct result of pressure from below, uh, the result of sort of real organizing, you know, something that goes back a long ways in this city. And it's it's one of those things. It's like if you talk about, you know, the homeless issue, you're talking about an element of the population that, you know, still uh, fights back, that still resists, even though, you know, they're considered, you know, some of the most vulnerable folks in uh, this country. You know what? I was also just thinking about this issue that I'm sure you're aware of, um, Maurice, down in um, a part of D.C., for folks less familiar with D.C., a part of D.C. called um, Adams Morgan. And there was this uh, plaza where, you know, some folks were living and just sort of, you know, doing their thing. It was kind of an open space that has now been closed off by, uh, I believe there's a bank that has done. There was a struggle that was going on for a while, and I was just there the other day, and they fenced it off. We actually did a segment about this on the show a little while ago, and you know, with 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 the pandemic really accelerating and exacerbating so many pre-existing issues, it really, to me, Maurice, feels like um, the attacks on the homeless population um, have intensified and have uh, quickened. I mean, you know, we're talking about a group of people who are almost always under attack and who, you know, by virtue of that sort of uh, live a kind of very precarious um, sort of uh, existence. And, and I'm wondering if you know the same, you know, you would know uh, better than I, you know, as someone who uh, uh, does this sort of work uh, constantly. But in a rapidly uh, gentrifying city um, with all the attendant issues of that, that again have been worsened under the reality of the coronavirus, uh, I'm just sort of, you know, wondering how you sort of situate that, um, Maurice, in terms of what has to be done uh, uh, for that movement, in terms of really sort of pushing for justice when uh, the state and those who are in power, the powers that be, seem to be, you know, employing all manner of resources to continue these attacks. You know what I mean? Absolutely, Sean. Um, it is a challenge. I mean, this, this is really hard work. We follow the lead of an organization called the Peoples for Fairness Coalition. And this organization is run primarily by black men who have, you know, had living, the lived experience of, of, of living outside and of being desperate for remedy of their condition. And we follow their lead, and it's part of their mission. Um, we do th- three things. Um, the outreach, which is, you know, 
the primary, in my opinion, the primary function of what is necessary to care for each other, advocacy and peer mentoring. And as part of our advocacy work, it is about organizing those who are who are currently and have experienced um, the the unhoused conditions that that lead that fight for mostly reform to influence policy um, with our with our local government and we run campaigns, you know, both, you know, on the street and, and digitally. Um, we testify, we serve on um, different city agency committees and, and, and work, working groups. Um, you know, we do all the things that we are instructed and conditioned to believe will, will create real change um, inside of the system, right? You know, quote, what you what people term the, the proper channels, right? The civil channel of democracy, and it's a challenge. It's a struggle because it's hard to galvanize folks when they're in such desperate need of the items and supplies that the overwhelming majority of people take for granted. And you know, oftentimes in this work. You know, people mostly see us providing our outreach, and I'm I'm okay with that. I, I'm not ashamed, and me personally, I'm not ashamed of that. Because when when we need toilet paper, there's no way we're going to have the capacity to testify at a, at a hearing or committee. When we need soap, there's no way we have the capacity the capacity to testify, and so. When we need food to survive and blankets and sleeping bags and tents, there's, there's just no way we're going to have the capacity to be able to advocate for ourselves. And so while we are charged and we must do the best we can to do all, all three, outreach, advocacy, and peer mentoring, we have to recognize that, you know, the least among us need the support of their brothers, sisters, and, and siblings who are housed, who, who are in solidarity with their condition, and who see ourselves in those who happen to live on the street. And, and, and that, that takes a lot of work. That is a lot of relationship building. That is a, that's, that's almost a kind of a different moral focus and, and moral compass. Um, that is not systemic or, or, or a normal, you know, normalized, you know, ethic here in the United States of America, given this, this mythological, individualized, bootstrap mentality. So, so it, is, it is very hard work. We are trying to organize. But for me personally, I happen to believe Providing, making sure that black people have toilet paper is a victory. We deserve so much more than toilet paper, but we must have it in order to experience any sense of human dignity. You know, Mar uh, Maurice, I'm glad that you just said, you know, that this society is, the, you know, this mythological, individualized, um, you know, craft, the, 
conflation of, of ideas that don't apply to most people. And, and that actually brings to mind the, the jobs report, because I, I every time they, they put out one of these jobs reports, I, I really look at it and I wonder why, first of all, why are you still doing this? Um, second, most of the people who need better wages, I mean, we we're just talking about the Amazon workers, uh, organizing for a union. And why are they organizing for a union? Because they need better wages and better benefits on their jobs. So whatever the U.S. politicians, the politicians of the U.S. government put out these uh, a report saying that the U.S. economy adds 431,000 jobs in March. That's what the latest report says. And, and they talk about how, oh, you know, for private sector workers, the hourly wage rose by 13 cents to $31.73 an hour in March. That's not most of the workers in this country. It's not even close to most of the workers in this country. Most of the people who work in this country don't make that much money an hour. And none of the people who work low-wage jobs making minimum wage make that much money an hour. And a lot of those people, Maurice, are homeless. And that's why they're homeless because they don't make enough money on the jobs they work to be able to afford housing and food at the same time. So, I mean, I feel like when we see this kind of, and I'm, I look at it as propaganda because it really serves no useful purpose in the real world, these jobs reports. I look at these things as another opportunity for us to call out just the ridiculous hypocrisy and the mythological nature of this government's policies and this country and the way it sees people and the way it treats people, looking at people's conditions as numbers on a sheet of paper or on a report that they can very easily manipulate to reflect what they want it to, but actually ignoring the real pain people are feeling uh, in even in employment. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the thing about it, Maurice, in, in sort of uh, discussing that, I mean, this so-called rugged individualism that uh, uh, is <laughs> almost uh, uh, a religious precept in the United States or in this or in capitalist America in general it's it's one of those lies that's been told for so long that uh you know people really start to to think that it's real and if you try to operate outside of that or if you try to operate you know um outside of the so-called protestant worth ethic which is just you know work for work's sake you shouldn't expect to gain anything from the labor that you do you shouldn't expect to make a living or be able to, you know, feed your family or take care of your medical or ever any other sort of bills, you should just feel good for having worked. I mean, it's all these sort of uh, psychological tricks, frankly, that have been played on a mass scale for all this time that, you know, really has done, you know, I think incredible damage to the collective consciousness of the people in the United States. I don't think it's impossible to uh, reel it back in, but to be sure, it's quite a task. But you know, uh, something else I was thinking about, Jackie, was a moment ago when Maurice talked about, you know, dignity. And I think that's important because 
So much of how this system operates is to, frankly, rob people of their dignity, to make people feel less than, um, you know, because of their race, because of their gender, because of their religion, because of their uh, level of education, because of their uh, class position, right? It says that if you uh, don't attain a certain level of material wealth or whatever, well, then you're not deserving of something as fundamental or basic as dignity. And so having a place to live is like a basic form of dignity. Being able to actually make a living from the work that you do, a form of dignity, having health care, quality education, all these things, all these uh, important resources and life necessities are uh, central to a person having dignity. It's not, it's not complicated, but it is powerful because if you set up an entire system that removes uh, uh, those basic things and that becomes a part of a systemic reality to the point where people will blame you for being homeless or jobless or poor or incarcerated or what have you. They won't blame the system because that individualism, that individualism is now uh, being directed towards the uh, uh, either impacted person or population. And so it's like this uh, complex kind of uh, trick almost that is, uh, that is and has been played on people. But something as basic as dignity The fact that that is such a battle within this system, I think, uh, speaks to the fundamental inhumanity of the system itself. And uh, and also the fact that when you live in a place of such, you know, plenty, when I say place, you know, we could talk about both the United States as the richest nation, the history of nations and even a city like D.C., you know, which has a decent bit of money available, all these resources that could go to giving people basic money. And where does it go? It goes to developers. It goes to the police. It goes to the military. It goes to war. It goes to uh, the Ukraine military and all these sorts of things. Every other thing is more important than our uh, uh, basic conditions. And this is why it's so important that we continue to struggle and continue this fight. But we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. Maurice Cook is here. And uh, Maurice, I think we got you back there. Are you there? 
I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. All right, beautiful. So, yeah, but just, you know, wondering your thoughts about that whole piece about, excuse me, dignity and how it seems the whole of this system seems designed to, uh, you know, rob you of it. Right. It's working perfectly for the elites, for us wage earners and and one check before being on the street earners and maybe two checks being on the street earners to wage warfare against one another. The elites benefit from this dynamic. I mean, unfortunately, there is a, has been always a perpetual war against the poor. And that war manifests in many different ways. But the dehumanization and devaluation of the poor absolutely is another privilege and benefit reaped by, by the elite. The elite become the victors. I, you know, I always talk about the renters versus the, the, the small property owners, um, the, 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 those who live in shelters against the renters, and then those who live on the street have to fight those who live within shelters. And this is the way the system is set up. It, it's, a, it's a perfect design to maintain the status quo with the preponderance of resources flowing to the top and being hoarded by those who reside at the top. And it, 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 it is a challenge, and we have to face it. You know, I hear a lot of people always talking about the nonprofit industrial complex as if, as if any, any mitigation tool created by the elite could ever actually address the structural inequality. Now, most of that criticism comes from very well-educated liberals and leftists who, who absolutely participated in a nonprofit industrial complex where they went to university. But these are the ironies of that, that we have to live with in the movement space. And we have to confront them and address them in order to make sure that the least among us are put first and are absolutely placed in the position to lead lead us all. Yeah, and, and I can't help but keep reminding people um, as we continue through this pandemic, as we are now facing, as President Biden promises, promised us, food shortages, high fuel prices, uh, you know, that's coming. We're going to have to deal with the pain. I cannot help but remind people, Maurice, that the rich folks, the corporate uh, oligarchs that we have in this country uh, saw a nearly $3 trillion profit, $3 trillion in 2021, middle of a pandemic. Just insane how they continued to make not just a profit, but $3 trillion record profit while the rest of us struggle. So, I mean, when we look at the way that those at the top, the 1%, literally profit off of pitting workers against homeless people and dangling a job, a low-paying job, in front of people who want actual, you know, an actual dignified wage for the work they do and are able to tell them, well, look, if you don't take the job, I know four or five people out there living on the street who will. I mean, this is the way that these people, uh, like the CEO of Kroger, 
who said in June, our business operates the best when inflation is about three or 4%. A little bit of inflation is always good in our business. See, inflation is good for them. Inflation takes food off the table because people have to pay more for that food for us. But it doesn't matter to them because a little bit of economic pain for us is good for them. And I, I think that this is another one of those moments where we really have to remind people our enemy is not the folks living on the streets who the politicians are telling us are causing your property values to go down. Our enemy is not, you know, these folks who are struggling, committing, you know, crime. Our enemy is the ruling class. That's right, Jackie. That's right. And and those who who transparently work for the middle class for the ruling class in order to get their little ends. And an example of that is when, when these clearings happen, these clearings physically they happen oftentimes by low wage workers who are working for the city, many of them returning citizens, possibly some of them who've experienced, you know, being unhoused and living on the street. Um, they are the ones who do the dirty work for the, our political establishment who is satiating the preferences of our new class of residents here in Washington, D.C., those who, who can afford to purchase homes from upwards of $600,000 to $3 million um, purchase price. Our city is, is absolutely prioritizing just their preferences. It's literally, they don't want to see it. They don't want to know of its existence, of, of the strife that is caused by the benefits that, that they enjoy. And how it works in real time is that those who are paid the worst and those who have had the worst opportunity are given an opportunity to hurt those that they should be truly in solidarity with. Yeah, I think that's the case. I think that's the case. And I mean, you know, I was just thinking about, uh, I think it was just last weekend, you know, I was um, uh, doing some outreach at, at a neighborhood here in D.C. And, and it really is insane the, the conditions that people are allowed to live in. And there's just, it, it feels like in a lot of times they, you know, uh, go, here it is again, through the, the proper channels of what we're told are the quote unquote proper channels with just absolutely no response or real help. And that's another issue that I think we deal with here uh, locally, Maurice, is just the incredible layers of bureaucracy and the passing of the buck and, and just what feels like an impenetrable wall of red tape that can make it all but impossible for people to get the very important assistance and resources that uh, they need. Now, on the one hand, excuse me, on the one hand, um, someone could say, well, you know, that's just a, a result of poor design. You know, if we just, you know, shift some things around and maybe streamline uh, some processes and that will fix everything. Well, to be sure, a lot of these processes do need to be 
uh, streamlined and made uh, 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 simpler. Um, but I also can't help but think that there's, you know, a benefit for the powers that be because the more difficult it is for people to, you know, make these complaints and to access these resources. I mean, to me, it seems like the better insulated they are. And so then they can, you know, go around in public and, and tout themselves as champions for affordable housing and things like this, when in truth, the exact opposite is true. And so how do you see those kinds of structural issues uh, factoring into these sorts of problems, Maurice, because, you know, oftentimes what we hear is this kind of notion that, well, oh, well, the people are just too lazy or basically too ignorant to, you know, go and get help. The help is right there, blah, blah, blah. But in truth, even when people do what it is they're supposed to do and go to, you know, the agency or department or whatever, what have you, that's supposed to handle their problem. They, you know, they, they don't find the help that they need. And it's hard to feel, Maurice, like that's an accident sometimes. You know what I mean? Oh, I think it's absolutely by design. I think it's absolutely by design. We, we, Service City Ward 6 Mutual Aid, um, we try to add to the capacity so that people are not conditioned to believe that they have to do this type of stuff by themselves. And what you're talking about is accessing the support systems and the services that are oftentimes, you know, touted um, and, and promoted by both the federal government and, and local municipalities for those who fall into, you know, struggling times and struggling conditions for them to be able to utilize to, to, to improve their situation. But they've created a system in which all it does is tax the individual to try to work through the, the bureaucracies um, that are, I mean, systemic and, and accessing, you know, resources that, that are grace, quote unquote, graciously given to um, communities um, that are marginalized. And so what we try to do is we try to recruit the yous and the me's and, 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 the quote-unquote regular people who do have at least one leg to stand on to provide support to those who have no legs to stand on. And, and we work intentionally to create the political education that our conditions are tied to one another. Whatever faces our brothers, sisters, and siblings we are also extremely hurt and vulnerable to as well. And so we try to add capacity, support people through these systems. We don't, the state absolutely does not help us <laughs> by providing any resources or supports, but we, we, we strategize recognizing that, that how can you go to the system that benefits from, by creating these, these intricate, intricate um, systems to access resources, they could never solve this issue. We as the people in solidarity, the working class people can be, can actually be the solutions that we're looking for. We just have to, we have to fight to support one another. And what I'm, I'm not talking about spouting political ideology. I'm talking about boots on the ground, 
talking to people, accessing, you know, like, like um, many applications are online. Well, to be online, you need both a device and internet access. We have to fight to make sure we're providing devices and internet access. Those who are more familiar with federal and, and, and city and state um, applications need to support those who have no familiar, familiarity or experience with these, with these functions. We can do this ourselves. And that's kind of the work that, that we do, what has been termed and coined as mutual aid, which I really call mutual survival. That's what it looks like. And we have to, we have to organize to do this better and, and build scale because the level of harm has increased. It is more acute. You know, in the in this in the eighties and the nineties, the city was known as as the murder capital of the world, right? It, you know, we had a lot of challenges and 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 particularly black communities with violence. And it is not as bad as it was back then, but it, it never has been as bad since then. That's what's going on right now. And this is an opportunity for us to actually build a sustainable solution, not dependent upon a system that actually benefits from our harm. Yeah, you know, that that period of time in D.C. was, you know, really frightening. And the interesting thing about that period of time that is absolutely true to today, to this day, Maurice, is that we saw the uh, flight away from our communities, not just of people, but of businesses, of institutions, of, you know, jobs. Um, and there were never any efforts to replace any of those things, those structures that that build and 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 sustain a thriving, healthy communities, uh, community, you know, like like the jobs, like the the decent schools and the markets and the grocery stores. I mean, just the fact that we've had to fight for a grocery store in Ward 8 for as long as we did was just it was just unconscionable. But I think that unless people live in these communities and see what left at the same time that that violence became the the predominant uh, uh, factor in the neighborhood, then, I mean, people don't understand that that it's not just, you know, a bunch of people who don't want to work and are, are you know, uh, uh, you know, problems to society, but it is that society has made a decision on what they are going to invest their money in and, and specifically who they are going to invest their money in, in regard to communities and which communities they are going to sacrifice. And it has been ours over and over again. Yeah, totally. And I mean, you know, over the years, there's just been a wild uh, process of, you know, underdevelopment, I think, in cities like D.C. that is part and parcel of this whole deal. And, you know, it, 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 I think, is what makes it so important when we see all these different efforts at the grassroots level to combat that. And that's something I've always, you know, admired about D.C. and native Washingtonians is sort of that style of organizing. Like I, to me, it's like a kind of hyper local, like block by block sort of way of uh, uh, thinking about things. And you have these groups and these formations that, 
you know, you know, basically have little, if any money at all, they may not even have a name, but they see an issue happening in their community where they live and they take it upon themselves to do something about it. I mean, historically there were groups like, you know, uh, uh, ceasefire, don't smoke the brothers and sisters, uh, peace and, you know, all, all of these uh, sorts of groups that have been doing, uh, uh, this hard work with, little resources and often even less uh, recognition. But there's just so much power in a collective organized effort. That's why we're always stressing the importance of a movement here in uh, Washington, uh, D.C. Um, excuse me. I mean, we're always talking about the power of the movement here on by any means necessary, not just in D.C., but uh, indeed uh, all over this earth. Because when we talk about the government on different levels, whether it's city, state, or, or federal, these are powerful people. We were talking about power earlier, right? These are folks who are invested with a lot of power by this system and by this state. And the only power that can match all of their money and their influence and their uh, resources and frankly, their uh, brutality, the only thing that can actually stand up to that is if the masses of folks who comprise the poor, working and oppressed majority in this country, that is the only real um, dynamic, I think, that could serve to really push back on that ruling class. And, you know, we're always told that, you know, this government, this state apparatus is too big, it's too powerful, it's got... Uh, too much going for it to ever actually fight, right? This is just another lie that we are all uh, often told. And so a part of the decompressing, I think, from the system and also a part of um, uh, a part of political education is to realize that that kind of powerlessness is in fact fake. But we're going to leave it there for today and this week can run by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik and Washington, D.C. One thing, Maurice Cook, so much for joining us today. We'll be back next week with an all-new slate of episodes. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By any means necessary.